Hello and welcome back to Talking Sense, the podcast, the podcast version of the Ashmolean research project Talking Sense. In the first episode, we discussed the aims and goals of the project, which were to look at the Ashmolean permanent collection and explore the role of the senses in art throughout history and in the museum context. In the second episode, Christy and I walked you through the formalities and functions of a workshop day. What did we discuss? What were we talking about? In the following few episodes, we'll be hearing recorded versions of the gallery talks, the culmination of the project. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Claire Gardam, a default candidate in the Faculty of Classics. Her talk partner was Juanjo Garcia Granero, a postdoc in archaeology. In this talk entitled The Rough and the Refined, Sensing the Luxurious and the Everyday, Claire and Juanjo explore how textual sources and archaeological evidence can differ in how they portray grand and ordinary living, drawing on examples from classical Egypt and Minoan Crete. In this episode, you'll hear from Claire, who's talking about Alexandrian textiles. Hello, I'm Claire Gardam, and I'm a DPhil student in ancient history. I look at Clement of Alexandria, his understanding of the senses, and how this fits into his historical context. Clement was a classically educated second century Christian writer. He wrote three main works synthesizing Christian and classical theology. His Paedagogus, which is what I focus on, is a sort of behaviour manual for Christians, containing detailed instructions on how to ensure salvation of the soul by disciplining the body. The senses, as interfaces between the soul and the external world, play a key role in this process. Alexandria in the second century was a trade hub, the second city of the Roman Empire. As well as supplying Rome with Egyptian grain, it was on the route between India, the Arabian Peninsula and Rome. Pepper, cinnamon and other spices would have been transported down the Nile from the Red Sea and transported on from Alexandria to Rome and other cities of the empire. In addition, Alexandria was a significant centre of glass and perfume production. Archaeologists have uncovered distinctive coloured granite and marble used in Alexandrian architecture. All in all, it would have been a feast for the senses. Clement is quite suspicious of this sensory richness, however, encouraging his readers to stick to plain food, plain clothes and simple houses. When I first thought to join this project, I came to the Ashmolean to see if I could find any evidence of either the luxuries available to wealthy Alexandrians or the plainer goods that Clement recommends. I thought I might find some glass or some jewellery, but I was really excited to find these textiles, because textiles so rarely survive from the ancient world. So what are these textiles and why do they survive? Egypt is the best place to find textiles from the Roman Empire for two reasons. Firstly, the climate is hot and dry and so preserves things which perish elsewhere, like textiles and papyrus. The papyrus fragments from the city of Oxyrhynchus are added greatly to our knowledge of everyday life in Ptolemaic and Roman Egypt, while the Cairo Geniza fragments are doing the same for the medieval period. Textiles add a visual and tactile dimension to this textual evidence. Secondly, Egyptian burial customs are a big reason why textiles survive. Egyptian practice was to embalm the dead, whereas cremation was customary in Rome. Embalmed bodies were richly dressed in the tomb. In some cemeteries in Egypt, bodies were buried with several layers of brand new clothes on, even with multiple head coverings. Linen and wool are the common local products, and that's what these textiles are made of. In the time of the pharaohs, largely linen was used, but once Egypt became Hellenized, you also found wool. The position on the trade routes mean that later there was lots of Indian cotton, which is also on display in the Ashmolean, just next to the objects that I'm talking about. The objects I'm focusing on are from the 3rd to the 8th centuries AD. They were produced in Egypt, largely from local wool and flax, and often a mixture of the two. Mostly they would have been woven on hand looms. The warp, which is the fixed vertical threads, were often linen as they needed to be stronger. The weft, 
which is the horizontal threads, could be wool. Wool takes dye better than linen, so the colours are usually done in wool. One of the textiles I'm looking at is not woven, uh, but made in the sprang technique, which makes a springy fabric rather like knitting. For this, you have just warp threads, which are crisscrossed and twisted from the centre, resulting in zigzag patterns. So the textiles that I'm looking at are all in one case together in quite a dimly lit gallery. So you need to look quite carefully to see their colours, for instance. Uh, one is a purple head covering, as I said, made in the sprang technique. One is a flower made in wool pile, which is sort of soft. Uh, several are tapestry. There's a tapestry vintager holding um, a vine uh, and some dancers in one of the drawers. Uh, there's also a panel with meandering patterns, uh, sort of abstract patterns on it. And what was their original context? Some of them would have been part of tunics, the round ones and the strips, uh, a kind of tunic which would have been worn by men and women, woven all of a piece from one sleeve to the other. The wool pile flower was possibly furnishing. The sprang head coverings were sometimes found in burials. There could be up to six or seven on top of one another. In terms of the colours, there's a lot of what we've called purple, um, it's probably not the imperial true purple, which was very expensive and made of murex mollusks, but rather a combination of madder or kermes, which would make a red colour, and woad, which was blue. There's a range of imagery, including lots of Dionysian imagery. So Dionysus, the god of wine and hunting, is often represented with vines and dancers and hunters and wild animals. There's a very interesting continuity of imagery here from pagan to Christian and into Islamic times. The wine and vines could be reinterpreted as Christian. What would have been the sensory impact of these textiles? We're rather limited in the museum context. You can look at them, you can imagine touching them, wearing them, but what would they have smelled like? What would they have sounded like as you moved? In terms of the smell, Murex, the true purple, was said to be smelly, these probably wouldn't have had the smell because madder is a root and kermis is a beetle and woad is a leaf, so they wouldn't have had the kind of fishy pong that Pliny talks about. But would that lack of smell have been a positive or a negative, given that murex was more expensive and therefore presumably more desirable? The texture is largely connected to function. The soft, warm wool pile was suitable for furnishing, while the lightness of a sprang head covering would have been appropriate in the hot climate. As for the colour, we spoke a little bit about the purple earlier. Pliny talks about murex, the purple colour, in some detail, and says that it's considered to be of the best quality when it has the colour of clotted blood and is of a blackish hue to the sight, but of a shining appearance when held up to the light. Hence it is that we find Homer speaking of purple blood. This is interesting because it's such a different approach to the colour purple from ours and a surprising association for something so valued. I wondered if maybe there was a link here to sacrifice in that the Romans would have seen a lot more blood than we do. One of the textiles has an abstract meandering pattern which has strong continuity with later Islamic abstract patterns. As you look at it, your eye moves around and it's hard to stay still. Possibly it's deliberately distracting in an attempt to avert the evil eye. Some of the images evoke a range of senses, music, bird song, the taste and smell of wine, the sound of clapping while dancing. This sort of multi-sensory evocation may seem a bit fanciful as an interpretation, but Philostratus, who wrote roughly the same time as Clement, who describes looking at a range of paintings, includes one of a Dionysian revel. His account is really interesting as one of ancient seeing, 
because it includes synesthesia and engagement with what is seen in really interesting ways. So he says, I praise too the dewy look of the roses and assert that they are painted fragrance and all. What else is there of the revel? Well, what but the revellers? Do you not hear the castanets and the flute's shrill note and the disorderly singing? In the description of another painting, he says that he shouted at a character in the painting because he forgot it wasn't real. Another interesting multisensory aspect to these clothes is that the depictions of flowers and dancers would perhaps have evoked senses associated with feasting while the clothes were already being worn at a feast. So I'm thinking about these textiles in the context of Clement and early Christianity. They're interesting to me because there are so many parallels with what Clement writes about. The textiles are around 75 to 200 years later than his writing, and his take on decorative textiles is largely negative. The things he says you should not wear are all well represented in this collection. For instance, the dyeing of clothes is also to be rejected, he says. The agreeableness of the colour afflicts greedy eyes, inflaming them to senseless blindness. But for those who are white and unstained within, it is most suitable to use white and simple garments. Elsewhere, he says, let us weave apparel pleasant and soft to the touch, not flowered like pictures to delight the eye. For the picture fades in course of time, and the washing and steeping in the medicated juices of the dye wear away the wool and render the fabrics of the garments weak. I think that's really interesting because as you can see when you look at the textiles, the dyed portions have actually survived really well. So this is clearly a rhetorical argument rather than a practical one against the dyeing of clothes. Elsewhere he lists dyes. Therefore the dye of sardis, which is the murex ulterian purple, and another of olive and another green, a rose-coloured and scarlet, and 10,000 other dyes have been invented with much trouble for mischievous voluptuousness. Even the purple head covering gets a mention in Clement, who says, Nor is it seemly for a woman to wish to make herself conspicuous by using a purple veil. Would that it were possible to abolish purple in dress, so as not to turn the eyes of spectators on the face of those that wear it. So why does Clement worry about these things? His advice is quite similar to contemporary pagans such as Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and can be understood as connected to Stoic conceptions of the senses. We might think of the soul as something not physical and wonder how the senses could affect it. This is very much a platonic understanding of the soul that we've inherited. In Stoicism, only physical things exist, so the soul must be physical. It is completely mingled with the body. And how do the senses affect it? Well, Diogenes says, a presentation or mental impression is an imprint on the soul, the name having been appropriately borrowed from the imprint made by a seal upon wax. That means that the sight of purple or the sound of revelling would make an impression on the soul, and that's what Clement's worried about. He sees the senses as unguarded doors through which there is access to the soul. He talks about this in relation to all the senses, not just with the colours we've talked about. For example, with hearing, he says that the carrion muse corrupts men's morals and perturbs their minds. And if you were to meet an unmarried woman at a feast, then you must control your sight by keeping your eyes fixed on the couch. He's worried about smell. The constant use of sweet oil bespeaks pampering, and pampering arouses lustful desires, he says, describing people as like cattle being led by ringers through their noses. Unlike classical Stoic understandings, however, which don't particularly see the soul as surviving after death, Clement believes the soul will survive, so the sensory impressions made in life have eternal consequences. Back to the textiles then. Many of these are from Achmim, which is a little bit further south and a big exporter of textiles. Its classical name was Panopolis, and it was a significant site of Dionysian worship in Roman times. These textiles are all a bit later than Clement, from a time when Achmim was a Christian stronghold. Nestorius, for instance, died in the neighbourhood, and excavations at Achmim 
has disclosed numerous Christian manuscripts as well as a number of Christian inscriptions. Given the date of the textiles and their provenance, they're highly likely to have been worn by Christians. So Clement's injunction to Christians to limit sensory experience in the interests of salvation may not have caught on, despite increasing Christianization. I think there's a really interesting tension here between the material and the textual evidence, and it's a good example of why we need both texts and artefacts, and to look at them together. It's exciting to read ancient accounts of seeing, such as that of Philostratus, and Clement's text gives us some ideas about how some second century Christians might have interpreted their sensory experiences. On the other hand, the continued use of the things he decries suggests that other values or interpretations may also have been at play. For further reading about this podcast and all of the podcasts in this series, please see the attached bibliographies in the show notes. Music for the show was by David Hillowitz, Moment of Truth piano version, provided by freemusicarchive.org. This podcast was presented, edited and produced by me, Christy Calloway-Gale. And me, Johnny Lawrence. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.